Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, dictated is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is Friday, May 29th, 2009. This is episode, I think, 209, if I've got that right. It's 208, 209, something like that. Uh, as I cruise between Arlington and Frisco, Texas in my 2006 Jetta Diesel TDI, my personal mobile studio, we share another morning together. I just passed the sign, folks. Orange alert, air pollution. Ooh, now I've got about 15 freaking miles of visibility, but it's orange alert, whatever the hell that means. It means about as much as an orange alert for the terror watch, I guess. Anyway, um... Today's show is going to be yet another show of your questions and my answers, and uh, this will be the fifth one in a row now, and i got to tell you, you guys have like latched onto this. I, I, I want to say something before I even do the house cleaning day, because I don't want anybody to get discouraged. If you've sent me a question, and you're wondering, man, when is he going to answer my question, I'm going to answer every question I've received so far. There's a couple of you uh, that I've put your question down in the queue a little bit from when it came in because I don't have a great answer for you yet. So I'm going to get you a great answer, and then I'm going to give you your great answer because some of you guys have asked some questions I went, I don't know, um, which makes them really, really good questions. Um, some of you, the reason your question hasn't been answered yet is because people are ahead of you in line. I have about 40 questions in addition to the uh, about 10 that I'm going to answer today already uh, in my uh, my inbox and lined up in their own little folder, including those ones that I'm like, I don't know about. So, don't get discouraged if I don't answer your question today. And uh, understand I'll get to them all, because this is uh, working really well. Anyway, let's go ahead and do our house cleaning. Number one, if you think you get more than 25 cents in value out of the Survival Podcast, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content only available to members. Uh, one of those pieces of content is a garden update video series. Uh, I did get all the editing done this week. I'm still working on generating the videos. It's quite a long video and it's taking some time to do. So uh, that's coming soon for uh, supporting members, brigade members. Uh, next thing, uh, please support our advertisers. They're great guys. They support the show. Uh, they help make, uh, you know, my, my eventual goal of doing this thing is, is what I primarily do uh, more possible and they get closer to being able to do that and do a better show for you with more research and more features every day because of those guys. Today's uh, advertiser of the day is uh, ready-made resources. Check those guys out. They have some really cool stuff. And uh, let's uh, also remember, guys, I will be at Dirt Time 09, Wilderness Way's big event in San Bernardino, California, uh, at the end of August. And I don't know if you can even sign up for that thing anymore, but uh, I want to give them at least one last shout-out there, the dad's coming. 
And a lot of big news on the way for Survival Podcasts. A lot of things that are in the works that I'm not going to say too much about yet uh, because I don't want to jinx them. You know that you know giving announcements before they happen. But we're we're really starting to make some progress here. And yeah, I want to always say it's because of you, the audience. Uh, I I am the uh, the mouthpiece of the show. I'm the voice. You're the body. You're the people that make this thing what it is. You're the people that bring me topics, bring me suggestions, help keep me informed, tell me what you're looking to find out next, uh, build our forum, build our community, spread the word. You guys rock, and I appreciate you. I really do. I don't just say that because there's like some kind of sense of obligation. You guys are awesome, and, and thank you for listening to my show. Uh, it means a lot to me. And you guys that keep sending me emails telling me you know how it's changed your life, uh, that's pretty awesome, too. And uh, for those of you that have been making big changes, I want to let you know we're getting ready to put together a special project. Um, the Survival Podcast will have its first birthday. It'll be one year old on June 20th. Monday, I'm going to give you uh, a special announcement and get you thinking of how you can participate in a very special uh, first anniversary show. And that first anniversary show, because I keep saying this, the show's about you, not me, is going to be all done by the listeners. I'm basically going to intro it, and I'm going to exit it. And the entire show is going to be you guys. And I'll explain to you how that's going to work on Monday. So let's go ahead and get into the show. Uh, again, we have a lot of great questions. And our first question is... That first question... Uh, guy says, I live in SoCal, Southern California. And I got lots of ants in my garden. Uh, they're not those little red jerk ants from... Uh, from South America, you know, the fire ants, they're just uh, regular plain old ants that don't seem to really bother me at all, but there's a ton of them. Is that bad for the garden? Uh, I see them in the compost heap. Are they bad for the compost heap or will they help break it down? Uh, will they damage my roots? I mean, is there anything I need to be worried about with these ants? I'd say with the compost heap, um, it's probably not that big a deal, but your, your problem there is they'll probably steal some of your organic matter. Uh, your ants are not the type, like if a cockroach or, or a cricket or something goes to your compost heap, he kind of eats it as he's there. He takes what he takes, and while he's there, he also defecates, so he's kind of breaking things down for you, just like you're saying. Ants haul stuff away back to a hole. I wouldn't worry about it, but, I mean, that's the worst thing they can do to your compost heap, and, uh, again, I... I just wouldn't really worry much about that. In your garden, um, you didn't say how many lots are. I mean, I, I don't, if anybody wants to see something really crazy, uh, go to YouTube and search for crazy raspberry ants. And uh, you get enough ants in anything and they can be a problem. And take a look at what crazy raspberry ants are doing to electrical boxes in Houston. But my, in, and those are also an import. They're not a native North American ant. Uh, my view is in the garden are native ants, uh, except for a, a particular nasty native ant known as a bull ant, which is a pretty nasty bite if one gets you. Uh, anything other than them, you should really view them mostly as a beneficial. Now, one thing you're going to have to ask yourself, though, is, is what are they doing there? What are they up to? Um, they could be not a threat or a problem in of themselves, uh, but are they an indicator that you have another problem? And what I mean by that is ants love aphids. 
and ants will spend an awful lot of time uh, basically milking aphids. So if you got that many ants in your garden, start checking out some of your plants. And, and I've noticed recently that aphids will actually spend an awful lot of time on pepper plants. So see if it indicates another problem. But I wouldn't worry about them. I definitely wouldn't worry about them really damaging your roots. Um, if you have like a carpenter ant that's eating away at wood that you're using for your rage's beds, that might be an issue that has to be removed. But in general, just wouldn't worry about ants. Next question. Um, another garden, a lot of garden questions. Uh, how often should you water? How much water should you water with? Basically, what are the patterns that I use to uh, to water my garden? In the summertime, once it starts to get hot, and it's doing that now, I pretty much water if it doesn't rain every other day. And uh, I'm watering at a rate in a 4 by 8 bed. I would say I'm giving that bed about 8 gallons of water is what it comes out to, which sounds like a lot. But when you start hitting the 100-degree mark and you're baking the ground in Texas, it's not, especially on every other day, and especially with a raised bed system that's not completely, you know, mulched in around the outsides and everything because I still have, you know, the suburban lawn and things like that. It's probably more than is necessary, but the reason that I go with that much water is that if something happens and I have to make it two days between watering cycles, I don't get a lot of crop damage. Now, believe it or not, later in the summer, once the plants are hot, Highly, highly established, and they're doing a better job of you know not just there's mulch on the gardens, and if you've seen any of the video in my garden, you, it's all mulched in. Uh, but the plants themselves are big enough to help hold down water, and their root systems are larger and deeper and wider. And I'll actually reduce watering a little bit in the later parts of the summer unless I see a reason to change it, and that's the big answer here. You really can pretty much look at your plants on a daily basis, and you know when they need water. You start to see them wilt a little bit, look a little bit unhealthy. You water them and they perk up. You know that that's the look you're looking for. So it's really about your area, how much water you have available, how well you're conserving it, and keeping a close eye on your plants. Mel Bartholomew will actually select you keep a few buckets of warm, warm sun-warmed water out by your garden and uh, water with a little cup. And don't water your whole garden at once. Whenever you see a plant that needs some water, water that plant and be as efficient with water as possible. Because I don't believe that the threat to our water supply is the suburban gardener. I don't quite go to that extreme, but I can't knock it. It's not a bad idea, and it is highly efficient. So there's my best answers on that one. Next question, how important is physical fitness to survivalism? And uh, for those of you who've seen video of me, I'm not the uh, the thinnest man in the world, but I don't think I'm unhealthy, and I think when you guys see the new video in the support brigade that I'll, I'll, I'll get try to get done this weekend, uh, in fact, maybe I'll even post like a preview link to the stuff that is uploaded, so you can watch it in the formats that it's already up there, and uh, I've actually knocked an X off my L, uh, just like I said I would uh, in the last couple months, I've uh, shed quite a few pounds, I think it is important, I think the big thing though is, physical fitness is... Uh, is a subject that has like millions of little micro disciplines in it and what is healthy and how healthy should somebody be I, I would put it to you this way you should be able to get up off your ass and walk several miles without sucking wind and passing out and falling over okay 
plain and simple, you should be able to walk four or five miles. If you can't do that, you're not fit enough because you may very well someday have to walk four or five miles. You should be able to uh, to sprint and get behind some cover if you were in a tactical situation without when you hit the ground having your heart beat so hard there's no way you can uh, take the next step for uh, you know, a 30 second break you really need to have some level of physical fitness now my belief is the best way to be physically fit is to eat right and to walk and you guys to go to the gym and hit the heavy bag and all trust me I've been there I used to really pound the weights at one time even um, nothing wrong with that if that's what you like and that's what you want to do, fine. But I think a good diet, and I'm not talking about, you know, let's be low-fat, counter-calories and all this crap. I'm just saying avoid crap food. Avoid junk food. Avoid going to McDonald's every day. Avoid, you know, if you're going to eat French fries, get yourself some good quality oil and fry some good quality potatoes. Don't go eating the crap that they provide you at fast food joints or the stuff that they have at kind of the you know the mid price places like uh, chilies and stuff like that. Eat them. I mean, they're covered in sugar. Uh, they're infused with sugar. So watch that diet and take a walk off it. I don't care if, you know, like here it's 110 degrees in the summer sometimes. If I went out at lunch and walked, there's a pond behind my office, and I went out there and walked around that pond five or six times, I'd cover a couple miles. That's a good walk to take at midday. I'd also come in stinking and no one would want to work with me for the rest of the day. So a lot of times what I'll do is I'll go to a place like Lowe's or Home Depot and I'll walk around there during lunchtime. And I know that sounds a little silly, but you know what? It gives me time alone away from the office. It gives me time to think. Walking's walking. It doesn't matter where you're walking. You're still doing the same action. So uh, that's a very important thing. I do think if you want to, like, kind of take your fitness up a level, one of the greatest exercises in the world is hitting a heavy bag. It's multifunctional because it'll teach you uh, how to deliver you know, blows and how to fight on some level and give you some kind of combat training. But it's extremely cardiovascular. It's uh, it's extremely good for building muscle and uh, toughening up your joints. Uh, ladies that are worried about um, osteoporosis, you get a heavy bag and you start doing it when you're younger so that you're conditioned enough so you can do it when you're older and you hit a heavy bag every day for 10 to 15 minutes, I guarantee you, you ain't going to be worried about osteoporosis. And you're going to be in really good. You're going to be in really good shape for an older person if you start hitting heavy bag before you're 40, and you keep doing it just 10 minutes every day. You'd be shocked. Um, I think if you were to uh, to take the approach of uh, working out a little bit with a heavy bag, taking a good, solid, long walk, and eating right. Uh, it'd be hard-pressed to say that you wouldn't end up being healthier than most of the people around you. Now, you may not look healthier than most of the people around you. I still carry somewhat of a gut, but I guarantee you some of these guys that hit the gym every day, and they're in there and they look like they're cut and they are got the great body and all, let them go elk hunting with me. <laughs> and I don't know if they'll make it to day two, but I guarantee you if they make it to day two, by the middle of day two, they're going to be sucking wind, and they're going to be hurting. And, uh, you know, we have this image in our minds of what healthy is supposed to look like. And people often think, well, it's healthy because I'm skinny. 
You know, skinny people, people that are dying of starvation are very skinny. Skinny's not necessarily good. Uh, fat is not necessarily good either. But your body has its own state of equilibrium. And if you give it the right, the right inputs and the right exercise, it'll find that equilibrium. And this is especially for the ladies. It may not be what you think you'd want. You may you know, look at yourself and go, that's a little bit too much hair, and God, I wish I could just get this off. And You know what? Focus on your health and focus on your capabilities, and uh, you'll be a lot better off in survivalism and in life in general. Um, next question, mentioning women there. Uh, gal asked me, how, how can a single woman really prep, you know, with all these things, uh, assuming I never meet a guy that's uh, into this stuff too and uh, end up with a husband? First of all, you're in short supply. Go out and look for some single guys that are in the survival community. You'll probably be beating off potential husbands with a stick uh, if that's what you want. Okay, and it sounded like that's what this lady wanted um, eventually. So uh, don't really think that you're going to have trouble finding a guy that would uh, be interested in a prepper type woman, uh, especially one that likes to shoot and uh, and do outdoor activities. Uh, they're not exactly a, an easy to find commodity. So you have something of, of extreme value to a lot of folks. And then next, um, I'm a big believer that. Uh, Anything, uh, when it comes to just the practical aspects of things, now if you're talking about who can lift the most weight, generally men can lift more weight, or if you look at athletic sports, men generally, uh, the, the world record for the men's event is generally higher than the women's event and all, and there's some physical differences, obviously, and there's some emotional differences, and that's why, you know, men and women are, are, are to me, built differently, so that together, as, as, a, as a parental unit, they form a complete package. The men is usually a lot harder, and sometimes that's needed, and the woman's usually a lot softer, and that's needed, but when it comes right down to it, as a woman, you can do anything a man can do. You could absolutely do anything a man could do. So the challenges that you have with prepping as a single person are pretty much the same challenges that a man has with prepping as a single individual. Two together can do more than, than, than one alone. So you have one income, you have one set of, you know, you have one mind, so you, you don't have the combined activity. So you have to face that challenge, but I would say don't face that challenge and think, how do I do this as a woman? I would say you take that challenge and say, how do I do this as an individual? And then it's simply a matter of you have to go a little bit slower and you have to put your priorities in place and what do you want to get done first and what's most important to you. And what's going to give you leverage toward living the type of lifestyle that you really want more than anything else. And that is what survivalism is all about. Remember, this this concept that people have that you have to have X number of days of food and X number of bullets and X number of guns and this and that and all these other things are uh, are, are, are maybe guidelines and places to start in certain situations if they're reasonable. And some of them are extreme. And just because some guy that lives in the middle of Idaho says, you know, you got to do X, Y, and Z in that order or you're wrong, doesn't mean that he's right. So you tailor your activities and your planning and your preparations to your lifestyle and what you want and where you want to be. And that might mean living in a place that's not the most ideal place to be in a survival situation for a period of time to you know firm up cash so that you can get more of what you want rather than compromising for something in between now. And keeping an eye on the situation while you're there and dealing as best you can with what comes your way. It's really up to you. But just focus on 
the concept that it's about you and what you want and what's best for you and those around you. And as far as eventually attracting someone else, be who you are, and you will attract the type of person that's right for you. We get into trouble in relationships, folks, when we try to be somebody else because we see somebody we think we're attracted to. So that's the best way I can answer that question. That's kind of a deep one, really, uh, even though it sounds kind of simple. Okay, guy sends me an email. says, hey, man, I live kind of a small town, and uh, I hear people talking about it. He's talking about concealed carry, as best I can tell, not like... Like uh, keeping a couple extra guns in the house, so like if one gun breaks, I got a backup gun. He's talking about people carrying. And the guy says, I got a backup gun, and I got a third gun. So the guy's got maybe a full-size auto, you know, on his on his waist, and maybe inside under the, the shoulder, maybe a small frame uh, titanium revolver, and then maybe something that's, you know, like a little tiny uh, handgun on his, at his ankle. And do you, do you think anybody really needs that much firepower, especially me in my little small town? My answer is probably freaking not. Uh, that's probably going overboard. And, um, I, you know, I've never carried that way. And I can't say that carrying a backup gun is a bad idea, and I can't really fault anybody for doing it. But if you're walking around with three guns on, I think maybe you're a little bit in fantasy land. Now, if you want to do it, this is American, God bless you. And if you want a gun on each ankle, under each armpit, and then two in, two in your waistband, and you are legally allowed to do it, and you don't mean anybody any harm, I don't care, and God bless you, and do it all day long. I just don't think, no, it's not necessary. And I don't think it's very practical either. I really don't. And I don't know what kind of gunfight some of these people think that they're going to get into. And I think we have a lot of people playing Red Dawn in their head. And, again, this is America. This is supposed to be freedom anyway, and I'm all for it. And if that's you, and as long as you're, you know, when you swing your fist, you don't hit another guy in the nose, I'm good with you. But uh, that's just my opinion, and that really doesn't need to be much more said about uh, that one here, is I have to stop and worry that somebody behind me is not as paying attention as I am. All right. So another guy emails me. And uh, it wasn't really a question, but I'm going to pull a question out of it. And it was basically that back in the uh, early fall, I bought a greenhouse from a company called Springhouse, Springhouse Greenhouse. And uh, I was overjoyed with it. I looked at it. I thought this thing was the most high-quality thing in the world. I really was very, very happy with it. I set it up. I remained very happy with it for quite a while. He said, I just wanted you to know, um, I bought one. And we had snow here, and between some wind, snow, and heavy uh, UV exposure, it basically collapsed. It it broke, and uh, I'm not real happy with them. I wouldn't recommend them for anywhere where you get a lot of snow. And uh, you probably don't have to worry about it, but, you know, I just wanted you to know that. Maybe you should make people aware of it. Um, I've been kind of tentative to say this because I don't really want to slander anybody's name as far as uh, their brand or anything like that, but these guys aren't a sponsor or anything and really expressed uh, a, a kind of a distaste for me even asking if they'd be interested in it. I'm glad they're not a sponsor now because I'm going to tell you guys today is my Springhouse Greenhouse is gone. 
Um, I never got any snow, and I didn't get a big, heavy buildup of rain. What happened is over time, the tension of the the, uh, the structure itself on the poles in it caused several of the poles to crack. We got one good, heavy wind day. It collapsed it, and it might w- would have been as simple as replacing the poles, but because of how it p- collapsed and the way the poles were, several of the poles actually punctured and ripped and tore the doors and uh, the roof of the greenhouse and basically destroyed it. So I can no longer recommend that um, spring house, greenhouse at all. And uh, I guess the, the little mini ones or something that might have a purpose or a use for the tunnels. But if you want a full-size walking greenhouse, I'd say go with another route. I don't think that they have uh, long-term viability, and it's a shame because it really looked to me like they did. And to me, the problem is not the quality of the the outer structure itself. The the uh, the uh, material that the, uh, the structure is made out of is fine. It's the material that those poles are made out of. They give out, they get weak, and they break, and they crack over time, simply from the tension that they're placed under by holding the structure up. And that's, again, that's too bad because I thought it was a great system and I was actually planning on buying several of them and zipping together and making basically a mini tunnel out of them. Uh, but, again, I cannot advise that at this point any further. So hate to say something bad about something, but when something's bad, you have to say it. So there you go. Uh, another person, this is that person that keeps asking, like, freaking awesome questions. Um, same person that asked about, uh, you know, tactical or practical and uh, disagreements with, I guess, a husband yesterday about how much tactical equipment was necessary. Uh, she said, should we keep liquor and cigarettes for barter in a shit-hit-the-fan scenario? If so, what kind? Um, yeah, i tell you what. Cigarettes have been used as a currency all over the world. I remember if you uh, if you wanted to get something done in Moscow in the 80s, a pack of Marble Reds uh, would get just about anything done for you, and even just a couple cigarettes. And uh, if you look at our prison system, the first thing that becomes a currency when uh, when you when you have prisons in a prison is uh, is cigarettes. So they may have some real barter value. I don't know what brand. I, I don't smoke. I think smoking is a terrible habit. I think it destroys your health, and I don't think you should do it. I also think you should be free to do it, as long as you don't want me to pay for your lung cancer when you get it, or if you get it. And I really hope you don't. I don't want anybody to think I'm being a jackass when I say, you know, when you get lung cancer. I'm just telling you, it's a reality. It happens, and uh, if it does, then you smoked your whole life. You deal with the consequences. And uh sounds harsh, but you're probably, if you're angry about that, you probably have said the same thing about other behaviors. So I don't know what kind other than to tell you that everything I ever saw about Russia where they were heavily used as barter, uh, Marlboro Red was uh, was, pre- was preferred. So vacuum sealing some of those up, throwing them in a deep freezer and having them in, in that event, that can't hurt. Uh, I'd be more inclined to, uh, if you're doing some gardening, to look at growing some of your own tobacco. Uh, tobacco in of itself I don't think is really as bad as, as, as cigarettes as a form of tobacco. The Indians uh, were a heavily tobacco-centric society. Didn't have a word for cancer. Lung cancer was basically unknown. Uh, one of the lesser known facts about cigarettes, folks, and I know some people are going to tell me I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm telling you it's the case. The reason that the, 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 the uh, smoke is so carcinogenic and so bad for you is the temperature at which it burns. Cigarettes are very dry and very thin, and they burn at a very high 
temperature. And cigarette manufacturers have actually tried to create a cool burning cigarette and they've actually been somewhat successful with it and it's turned out that it's a lot less toxic but then they backed away from it because bringing it out would be a further admission as to how toxic and terrible cigarettes are. Uh, This is also the reason that occasionally, even with my harsh stance on cigarettes, I'll smoke a nice cigar. Burns a lot cooler, tobacco's fermented out, it's moist, lots of different reasons why a cigar is less, that I'll say it's healthy for God's sakes. Don't tell me, you know, you're still going to die. I, yeah, we're all going to die someday. Uh, but that's why I'll smoke a cigar. Now I'm talking about once a month. So, you know, maybe growing some of your own tobacco might last a lot longer for you than a couple cartons of cigarettes, uh, you know, frozen up and uh, used for barter. As far as liquor, uh, if you drink, uh, store up what you like. That way you can use it from time to time and restock it, and you'll have a surplus you can use for barter if you ever got that situation. If you don't drink, I don't know, vodka, because vodka can be mixed with anything and, and come out pretty decent. Tequila, I, you know, what, I, whatever floats your boat, not a bad idea. Um, keep it, I actually keep a flask of uh, vodka and a flask of whiskey in my bug out bag. And uh, that has multiple purposes. And uh, so that's my view on that. Next one. What are my thoughts on North Korea and a possible EMP attack? And if you're going, he's answering my question. I'm answering your question about 50 other people's. I didn't think about this for a couple days. Folks, I think this is being overhyped by the media and by conservatives. Say that again. I think this is being overhyped by the media, by conservatives, and really even by the liberals in government as well. Um, Am I totally disinterested and unconcerned and think it's a bunch of nonsense we don't even need to think about? No. No, I I think there's a threat there. I think this guy is, uh, I think Kim Jong-il on some levels is a complete freaking whack job nut. I also understand why he is the way he is and why he views the United States as an enemy. And, and we cannot ignore this if we're going to you know, properly deal with Korea going forward, both the North and the South. We have to accept the fact that after World War II, the, the Soviets and the United States decided, you know what? We're just going to cut this country in half. The 38th parallel. That's just what we're going to do because we can. We cut the country in half. We set up two totally separate governments in a land that had been occupied by invaders for over a century already in the form of Japanese. So they finally get out from under what they see as impression and we cut their country in half. And then we can say whatever we want um, about, you know, protecting the South, but, you know, the Russians did kind of get out of the North's business like they said they would. And we're still in the South's business. And you can say we're wanted there, and maybe we are, maybe we're not. I, I don't know. But th- that's the reality, and I'd like to ask you, if you live in the United States, and most of my audience does, if, let's say, we would, were invaded by the Chinese. And to our rescue came, I don't know, the Europeans and the Russians. 
They came in and they fought a world war against the Chinese. And they and I know this is not very probable, but you got to put yourself in the perspective of these people. And they pushed the uh, the invading Chinese out of America. And at the end of the war. The Russians and the Europeans decided, let's use the old Mason-Dixon line of the South, let's cut the United States into the North and the South again. And you take yours and I'll take mine and we'll set up new governments. And then whoever took over the North left and whoever took over the South stayed behind. And we wanted to put our country back together and it was interfered with. Now, even if there were major disagreements within our nation as to how, how would you view that third party? Would you be okay with them, or would you see them as an enemy? Just want you to think about that. I'm not saying that North Korea is a beautiful place, and we should all emulate North Korea and, and poor Kim Jong-un. None of that. I'm just saying you better start thinking about the people there, because my big fear of this is not Kim Jong-il launching a nuclear strike over the United States with one nuclear explosion in the atmosphere, with an EMP pole shutting down the whole United States, the way Newt Gingrich said could happen. Because if he did that... North Korea would be turned into a parking lot overnight because, trust me, our ability to return strike is not dependent completely on our electrical grid. And he knows this. My bigger fear is that this eventually is used as an excuse for military action against North Korea. And if you start to see a case being made for that, understand you've been duped. And understand it doesn't make any sense at all. And those of you that are big Barack Obama supporters, I want to hear you beat the anti-war war drum as hard if that happens under Barack Obama as you did against George Bush because you hated Bush. I'm not saying you were wrong. I'm saying I want to see consistency out of people that have been walking that walk and talking that talk and now think that Barack Obama is the savior of the planet. So, what do you, I think you should do about this? I don't think you should do anything different than you've been doing every day. You stick with your threat probability matrix. You, you, you stick with uh, your threat in, impact scale. You keep making your preps and your planning based on the same things that you always have. And don't be distracted from reality by a media that's incessant with a need to sensationalize everything and a government that wants to misdirect you at every opportunity so you pay attention to an outside threat instead of paying attention to the internal threat of what they're doing to our country by flushing our constitution and our economy down the freaking toilet. That's what I think about North Korea. All right. Okay, next question is really an easy one. Uh, another garden question. What's the best way to stake up tomatoes? And, and the guy that wrote the question said how he had planned to do it. And there's only one person asked us. So if you're hearing this, it was you. And it's not like some of the other questions with 20 people asking the same question. Um, so I don't remember exactly what you said you wanted to do, but it would work. I remember when I looked at it, it's, there's not any real problem there. So if you want to go ahead and do that, that's fine. What I've learned this year is that when somebody develops a system and tells you it works and has years of history of showing people how it works, you probably can trust that it works. And if you, uh, when you see the new videos, if you have access to the Member Support Brigade, and I might even make this video available on YouTube just for everybody, uh, but if you see my garden, what you'll see in three of my raised beds, and it'll be a fourth one after this weekend, is a good old-fashioned Mel Bartholomew uh, square foot garden trellis built out of electrical conduit and uh, six-foot trellis netting. 
or five foot trellis netting, whatever it is that, that uh, Burpee sells. And it's pretty dead gone simple. And you, you take the back side of your row, and that's where you plant all your uh, your your climbing crops. And they can be cucumbers, tomatoes, melons. It doesn't have anything that you can trellis up, trellising beans. And you build a frame out of electrical conduit. And you can either bend it or you can use the little couplers, and that's why I use the elbow couplers. And uh, Mel says to build them four foot by four foot, you know, four foot long. And uh, so if you have an eight foot bed, put two of them in there. I just used eight feet. And what I did is I took uh, two ten foot pieces of conduit, and uh, I cut four foot off of each of them. You splice two of those four-foot pieces, the, the, the two four-foot pieces you cut off together, you get eight foot, and you've got two uh, six-foot uprights. You get a two-foot piece of rebar, you pound it in the ground, and you stick your six-foot pieces on top of that rebar, and then you put your, uh, your, your elbows on each side, and you splice together with a straight splice in the middle, and you get a long thing. Now, what I found is that it's kind of flimsy in the center where that straight splice is. So you take another two-foot piece of rebar, you put it one foot into each of the pipes right at the splice point, and you use that little piece of rebar to reinforce it. All in all, you're out about 10 bucks per bed for an 8-foot bed. With a 4-foot bed, you don't have to worry about the center piece of uh, rebar there. Maybe I'll do a video that explains uh, exactly how to do this. But if you build a, tre- uh, a frame and put that trellis netting up there, you don't have to tie anything. You just kind of weave the plants in and out. I am so happy with that method. I will continue to use it from this point forward. I think it's probably the best method there is uh, for staking up any plant. Now, how I used to do it, and this it absolutely works fine. You get a great big long stick, at least, uh, so it'll stick at least six feet up out of the ground for most tomatoes. Because uh, if you're growing healthy tomatoes, six feet is not a big challenge from the reese by the end of the season. And uh, the best thing I've found to tie tomatoes to a stick with is you get old rags, old t-shirts, and you, you, you tear them into strips. And you, what you do first is you tie the strip to the, uh, to the pole with a simple overhand knot double overhand knot that creates a padding against uh, the stick and against the uh, tomato and then you tie the tomato to itself uh, to, to that and it's it's pretty simple and it's the way people have done it for years I would not use string if you're tying to a stake because it's uh, highly likely to cut into the vine and once you cut into the vine you'll lose everything above and you'll stop the growth of it so uh, that's what I'm doing that's how I used to do it I'm not a big fan of tomato cages you'll actually see a couple in my garden because I've got one bed with two tomatoes and nothing along the back side of it that's going to trellis up. Uh, I already had them, so I went ahead and used them. But as the tomatoes reach the top of them, I'll go to a standard staking methodology. But real simple, go with a trellis, uh, with that trellis netting, the 7-inch open squares. It's absolutely wonderful. Another question. I mentioned last week about uh, doing things like cloning peppers and cloning tomatoes where you can cut a piece of, uh, of the plant and put a rooting compound on the plant and then start roots on it by setting it in water or perlite or vermiculite or what have you and then transferring it to soil and building a good root system and basically creating another plant. And it's much faster than growing from seed. And you can, at the end of each year, if you have a good greenhouse or a good sunny location, good UV light settings or whatever, you can basically take a clone of every plant in your garden, winter them through, and then put them out in the garden next year and never start a seed again. And I mentioned 
something about willow tips, and the guy said, can you uh, elaborate on that? Well, willow tips, and what I mean by willow tips is you go to a willow tree, and you get the tips of new growth in a willow tree. And you just cut a handful of those off. And then you either use like a mortar and a pestle to, to mash them up into kind of a goo, or you can put them in a food processor, you can chop them up with a, with a really good meat cleaver. You can do whatever you want, but basically you have to make them as close to a paste as you can get them. Adding a little bit of water is a good way to, to, to make that process go a little bit further. And then instead of going to the store and buying a rooting hormone, you use that. And it's very effective at helping new plants set roots when you're using cloning methods or creating root stock or doing anything that you would normally use root hormone for. I don't know how they make root hormone, but I know if you go to the, to the garden store or Home Depot and go, you got rooting hormone, they'll sell you a great big gun gallon jug of it for about 12 bucks. So it's probably easier just to buy it, but the skill and the knowledge that you can do it with willow tips is probably very valuable for a shit-hit-the-fan scenario. And if you happen to have willow trees on your property, why not just use those willow tips? So that's what I was talking about, and that's how to use them. Last question of the day, folks, and it's good because I'm uh, just about to the office of light traffic day today. I've mentioned that I'm going to sell my home here in Arlington in 2010 and move to Arkansas. At least that's the plan. When I do that, um, will the podcast continue? Absolutely, yes. Uh, the podcast will be better than ever if we get to that point because I'll have a homestead that I'm squaring away and really putting a lot of daily effort into and shaping, and it'll give me all kinds of additional content, both for the show and for video, um, and it'll give me a hell of a lot more time, honestly. And uh, though the, the mobile part may become a thing of a past as far as, you know, this is me uh, driving down the road yelling at a car once in a while, or getting these distracting phone calls that you've heard today. Um, either way, um, you know, the, the, the podcast will go on. The other question was, do, how do I plan to support myself uh, and my family when we move there? Will the podcast be my primary source of income? It will definitely be a, a, a major source of my income. And thanks to the support that you guys have given me, the, the, the huge number of people who have actually joined the, the brigade, um, that's, that's more possible than ever before. And if things continue the way they are, by the time we move there, I'll have no problem supporting uh, living there. And uh, I'm also starting to attract some really great sponsors, and we have some people that are looking to maybe come on pretty soon, some of them some fairly big names, and uh, I'll never make a fortune with the Survival Podcast, but yes, it will support my lifestyle there. The important thing I want people to understand is uh, you can do it too. And it doesn't have to be with a podcast. It will support my lifestyle, not because I'm going to make a killing on the show. That's that's, that's not the way it's going to happen. Um, it'll support my lifestyle because my lifestyle will be so affordable there. We'll basically move there with paid-for vehicles, lots of cash saved up, all the things that we really need to get by already purchased and paid for. Uh, still relatively young. I'll be 37 years old. And uh, we'll be able to sell this house. And, and I, I'm telling you guys that are worried about, well, what's going to happen if real estate keeps going on? Even if real estate dropped another 10% in Texas. Well, by the way, Texas is the number one economy in the United States right now. I could still sell the house and pull equity out of it because we practice what we preach, folks. And I'm telling you, we buy under market value. We make additional payments. We go in equity heavy. So I'm going to be able to basically move up to Arkansas and write a check and pay off the house up there and that's what we'll do when we make that move and uh 
sure, the uh, income from the podcast will help, but I could be making the income as a uh, private contractor doing consulting for my main line of work. Uh, there's so many ways that a part-time income uh, can provide people uh, sufficient living in lower-cost places to live through taking advantage of geographic arbitrage that I don't know why more people don't do it. And what I mean by that is if you are a highly skilled person uh, and you really get good at your job, and by the time you're 35, folks, if you're not, I'm sorry if this offends you, you should be really damn good at what you do at 35. Uh, the way I look at it, you should have been doing it for at least 10 years, if not 15 years at that point. And if after 10 years of doing something, you're not an expert at it, why are you still in that line of work? So odds are you can probably find some way to leverage that skill through contract and make a significantly advanced wage, and then you move to a place that requires significant, you know, the people around you are, are making a lot less money than, than even just an employee, and you should be able to support yourself 20 hours of work a week. And is it easy? No. Is it simple? No. Will somebody just say, do A, B, C, D, and E, and you'll have it? No. Will you have to work hard and, and you know, kind of sort it out? Yes. Is it worth doing? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want you to know, one, yes, the podcast will continue. Two, yes, I am trying to make my, my show my primary source of income. And three, it doesn't need to be a lot to give me the life that I want if times get tough or even if they don't. And uh, last but not least, you can do it too if you really want to. You can have what you want if you have a plan and you execute on the plan. And some of you may say, I don't want to work 20 hours. I like to work 40 hours. That's fine too. But my point is figure out what it is you want and go for it Uh, because we still have enough freedom in this country to make that happen. And, uh, you know, God bless America for that. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.